And here we go. Okay. So hi Hello. again. How are you? I'm Dana. I'm Kristen. This is Darker Side of Life. Welcome back to our next episode. I hope you enjoyed last week's story. Kristen has one for me. She said it's dark. She said it's a bummer. What did you say? It was heavy? That's the word you used? It's heavy. It's heavy. That's the best way I can describe it. I don't think I'm prepared for this. I'm going to be really bummed out, aren't I? You might be. I was bummed yesterday. I'm glad I have flaming Hot Funyuns behind me to like (laughs) drown my sorrows in if I have to. (laughs) I was bummed yesterday finishing. I watched a lot of documentaries on this. I've listened to a lot of podcasts on this. I read a lot of articles. I was finishing up my notes yesterday and I was very down yesterday afternoon. Oh God. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So what's kind of funny before I announce what it is, is you referenced it in your last episode. I did? Yes, you did. I don't even remember. I just talked about it. I don't even remember. Yeah, you referenced it. Is it Mount it. Everest? Like no. something from Mount Everest? No. We're going to talk about Jonestown. <gasps> I did reference you it. Did. Okay, I remember you now. Did. So we're going to talk about the People's Temple and the Jonestown Massacre and Jim Oh, Jones. God. All kind of in together. Yes. I do love a good cult, but this story is going to bum me out hard. <laughs> do you know everything about it? I thought I I don't did. know everything. I know like bare bones basics of it and, yeah, and everything. That's, but that's kind of how I was. Um, I really honestly was not planning on doing this. And I, when I flew home a couple weekends ago, I listened to a podcast, a like a two or three, I think it was a three-part podcast um, on this, the um, Case File True Crime podcast did a really good one on it. And just, for, I just listened to it for fun. And then I'm like, oh, hmm, I have to do this. I started watching a lot of documentaries. So I decided I'm going to have to just cover this. You went down the rabbit I hole. I really did. I watched a lot on it. And that's why I was so The Case File is a good podcast. It's too. really good. They do a really good job on it. Yeah, they do. Um, I learned a lot. Like, obviously... Most people know the drink the Kool-Aid reference and they know something about Jonestown. So after researching this as much as I did, I kind of feel bad about using that phrase now because oh, really, yeah, because some of the survivors talk about hearing that phrase and realizing what it's referencing. Oh, yeah. I didn't even yeah, think I about never that, did either. But, I mean, I know the phrase drink the Kool-Aid and I've always kind of take it to mean you're like part of the cult now. Yeah, well, it came from Jonestown. So this is a long one. This is long um, because <laughs> I go back to the very beginning of with Jim Jones. Jim Jones is an awful person, but obviously you can't talk about Jonestown. You can't talk about People's Temple without really giving a background on who Jim Jones was. Plus, I'm sure it'll shed light on it why he did what he did and how people followed him a little bit yeah cults are fascinating to me cults do fascinate me because i just wonder sometimes how do people get wrapped up in this and then it's so easy if you think about it it really is um and i'll kind of talk about my thoughts on getting into a cult at the end of the episode like how you made that sound like you were in a cult cult. like i'll tell you how i joined a cult (laughs) people doing cults and they don't even realize that they've done it Okay, so we're going to start at the beginning because before there was Jonestown, before there was People's Temple, there was Jim Jones. And um, he was born James Warren Jones on May 31st, 1931 in Crete, Indiana. So this is a small town in the Midwest. His father was James Thurman Jones. His mother was Lynette Putnam. Um, 
Jones was, he was Irish and Welsh, but would claim he was also Cherokee, which a relative said was completely oh, untrue. And I almost didn't include that, but I'm come like, on. no, because it kind of goes into how he is. He's a liar. <laughs> he's a liar, but also you're kind of going to see that he uses um, people of color and minorities and the disenfranchised to really kind of build himself up. So I thought that that was kind of important to include that he's like, hey, yeah, I'm Cherokee. Like, no, no. you're not. His relative is <laughs> like, stop. no, you're really not. Just stop. Yeah. Um, because of the Great Depression, Jones's family relocated in 1934 to Lynn, Indiana, and they lived in a shack with no plumbing. So kind of a rough life that he started out in. His father was a World War I veteran with a drinking and gambling problem, and his mom had to work all the time to support the family. So Jones would later say, I didn't have any love given to me. I didn't know what the hell love was. Um, Jones really didn't make friends easily when he was growing up in school because he looked different than like your typical Midwestern kid. He had really dark hair. He had really dark eyes, dark features, like he just looked different. He liked to read and studied Gandhi, Stalin, Marx, and Hitler. Oh, God. Just a few. Yes. And he admired all of them. Okay. Studying is one thing because I can understand where people would have an academic curiosity and hopefully they mm -hmm. use their knowledge for the betterment of society in the world instead of against it. But once you said he admired them, I'm like, this is not going to go yeah. well. <laughs> he did. And I just, I don't really understand how someone can admire Gandhi and Hitler at the same time. <laughs> like, this just doesn't make any how sense. Anybody admire Hitler at all? Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> Better point. Yeah. He liked animals and he would actually collect animals that came into this yard and he would keep them kind of in like a pen in his backyard. Oh, no. Um, yeah. Well, he better not do anything bad at these There were reports that he used to do some weird things to pets. But no. They're really verified. Jones did see himself as the underdog, I put that in quotes, of the community. And he would fight off bullies for other kids. He would help the homeless. He would take in stray animals. What? Um, <clears throat> yeah. confusing me. <laughs> I know. I know. It's very, it's very weird. Isn't it weird how people like this, though, can be... It's like Pablo Escobar. Like, here's this big, huge drug lord that would kill you if you looked at him wrong or if he ordered you dead, then you're dead. But he also built schools and gave yeah. people money and food and, like, really took people, like, care of people in some ways. Some people loved him for that. We'll definitely have more instances where you're like, huh, like, what he's doing doesn't seem so bad, but he was a bad person. So, the essence of yeah, the it's very confusing. <laughs> Jones would go on to say it was a documentary I watched called Jim Jones slash Jonestown documentary. It was on YouTube. He said, feeling as an outcast, I'd early, I'd early developed a sensitivity for the problems of blacks. I brought the only black young man in town home and my dad said that he could not come in. And I said, then I shan't. So apparently his dad was a member of the KKK and Jim Jones was very much opposed to that and opposed to segregation, wanted integration, saw African-Americans as equal. So he kind of was against his dad and a lot of Indiana at the time, because again, this is pretty early on. Segregation is happening. It's a big deal. So to kind of not go along with that was very radical of him, even as, as a kid. And other kids did describe him as very weird and said he was obsessed with religion and death. And oh, God. There were some rumors that he killed a cat and nope. also that he would do weird medical experience on animals, attempting to, like, 
do blood transfusion from animal to animal and then like cut off a piece of one animal and sew it onto a piece of another one. Yeah. So very Frankenstein. So this is what some of the kids said. Do you not notice this is happening? Like mom and dad and be like, um, son. Well, his dad was a drunk and his mom worked all the time to support the family. So that's like a big thing. Like he didn't feel loved growing up. He didn't feel like he had a family and people to take care of. The thing is, I know what's coming. So yeah, like right now I kind of sympathize. Like I could sympathize with him and be like, oh, like the guy's like for equality and he is nice Mm -hmm. to animals and all this. But since I know what's coming now, I'm like, I don't believe him. I kind of have, have theories because I was the same when I was kind yeah. of reading about this thinking, but I have some theories as to why I don't believe a lot of it is, I think he had ulterior motives, but we'll address that. Yeah. So he did take an interest in religion very early on and studied everything from the Quakers to the Pentecostal religion. A family friend took him to a full-on Pentecostal service where they're speaking in tongues and all of it, and he loved it. Um, Jones was hooked from the beginning. He loved the style. He loved the energy. And he really latched on to that. And um, there's a journalist who we'll talk about later who was actually in Jonestown when everything went down. Really? Um, well, he well, I'll talk, He came with the congressional delegation that came to check out Jonestown. Kind of like sparked everything. Oh, okay. Yeah. His name is Tim Raiderman. I think that's how you pronounce it. And he says that he believes Jones saw it like a a surrogate home and that the preachers were almost like fathers to their congregation. So again, like he's looking for that home and father figure because he doesn't have it. And he feels that the church and he saw that the preachers had, quote, power over the lives of the congregation. And he really began to study this type of preaching style and develop it for his own. He's a kid at this point. But he begins to have church services in the family barn where he would invite local kids to come hear him preach. And he would like stand up on the stage and just preach. And people were really impressed with him. Like for a young kid, they're like, he really had a way of like drawing people in and getting people to listen to him. However, he would sometimes lock them in the barn and would not let them leave. Oh, my God. It was a loyalty test for them, and they would have to stay. He is starting early. Mm -hmm. One friend tried to leave, and Jones pulled a gun on him and pointed it at him and shot. Missed the kid. Oh, my God. Did he, like, intend to shoot the kid, or did he intend to miss on purpose? I don't know. But either way, he pulled a gun out on his friend and pulled the trigger. I'm not even going to ask where he got a gun, because this is America. what 30s 40s i mean so early on so but that's like a whole bag of red flags right there someone take care of this kid as jones grew up um he became a social activist um like i said before he pushed for integration which was very radical during this time in the country Again, his father was a member of the KKK, and Jones would not speak to his father after he wouldn't let an African-American boy in the house. I do kind of question that, though, because that's kind of what he's saying. I'm like, did that really happen? I know. Or... See, now, because I know what happens in the future right. and like how he is, I'm just like, you're, you're such a big faker. You're just using this to your advantage to make yourself look good. In 1949, Jones married a woman named Marceline Baldwin. They met while they were both working at a hospital. Marceline was a nurse. Jones was 18 years old at the time, and I believe Marceline was a couple years older. And in 1951, the couple moved to Indianapolis. And this is when, in the early 1950s, Jones starts attending meetings for the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. Okay. Obviously, at this time, 
being associated with a communist or claiming to be a communist not going to be good for you is not something that's very acceptable (laughs) and jones witnessed a lot of persecution and harassment against people who were attending these meetings including his mother his mother was someone going to these meetings and she was harassed she was even harassed by the fbi so they're communists right jones saw this happening and he didn't like it because he really kind of went along with the whole communist belief system and really kind of took to that. So Jones wanted to find a way to practice his communist beliefs and obviously couldn't really do it very well in public. And he wanted to go through the church or to quote, infiltrate the church. So. Okay. Right. Because I guess he's thinking that like, if you're preaching your communist beliefs from the pulpit, you're a little more protected than if you're talking about it out on the street. I feel like people would believe you more too because people are going to tend to listen and actually mm-hmm. like listen and take in what their pastor, preacher, priest right. is saying. Right. They're consciously coming to church to listen yeah. to what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Jones became a student of a pastor at Somerset Southside Methodist Church in Indianapolis, despite him being an open communist. Like everybody knew he was a communist, but they let him come to this church. And, um, Well, Jones actually wanted to integrate the church with African-Americans, and this didn't go over well with people in the church, so he ended up leaving. And it was around this time that Jones had his first experience with, quote, faith healing. Oh. Um, Yeah, so Mm -hmm. he saw faith healing being practiced in another church he was attending, and he saw that it attracted not only people, but their money. So he started to realize that one way he could preach and talk about his social views would also be to get something that would give him financial backing for services like this. And he saw faith healing as a way to get that financial backing for what he wanted to do. It's good to know he's doing this for all the right reasons. Yeah, for me. (laughs) This is why I can't really, I take with a grain of salt that he was very like an activist and right. Yeah. So in mid 1956, Jones organized a religious convention with another preacher named Reverend William Branham, who was also a, quote, faith healer. And I'm putting that in quotes because there's no such thing as a faith healer. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Don't at me. (laughs) (laughs) Don't at me. It was after this convention that he started to gain followers and notoriety, and Jones opened up his first church that would eventually be called People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. That's a lot. That's why we call it the People's Temple. That's what it became. You got to shorten that name a little. Like your marketing campaign is going to be a nightmare. (laughs) People's Temple was a fully interracial church and very radical for this time. So the People's Temple was born and everything starts into motion. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it was so great. Like he integrated his church. He did this. He did that. Yeah, it's like on the surface, it all looks great. It all looks great. But I also think he's also using people like the African-American community who have a very tough time in society to be like, oh, I'll save you and then use you to gain what I want. So, Or to them on the surface, it seems like, hey, here's a place where we can belong and where we can integrate and where we can be treated equally. But really, he's I just want your uh, money every Sunday when I pass around right. the basket. Like mm-hmm. it's all he cares about. And then they may be in it for something. They're actually looking for something meaningful. Mm-hmm. And he just wants dollar bills, y'all. I think he wanted more than money, though, to be honest. Yeah, of course. So with his first church, Jones obviously needed to raise money. Do you want to take a guess how he first raised money for his church? What he oh, did? Oh, God. Who knows? 
He sold monkeys from door to door. I thought it was going to be something to do with animals, but I'm like, what can you do with animals? That I don't know. It's not yeah. weird. He sold. You monkeys. sold monkeys. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a huge demand for that in Indiana. Apparently, I, apparently. so um, a woman named June Cordell. She was one of his early followers. Her mother-in-law Edith had a monkey that died. It hung itself, and Edith was like, "I want a new." Wait, monkey. wait, wait, wait. The monkey the hung mo- itself. Mon- she, she like committed go- suicide. She didn't go into detail. She just said the monkey hung itself and went on. So like, apparently this is a very normal thing. What? I don't know. So he's like, we got to sell more monkeys, man. They're committing yeah, suicide they're over here. It's a problem. Suicide. Maybe it was an accident. I don't know. But Support the monkeys, everybody. Edith wanted another monkey. So she saw the ad Jones had running in the paper selling monkeys. So she, that's how she met Jim Jones. And so... She started attending his church and she loved it. Oh my God. Pretty soon, um, Edith's son, Eugene, and his wife, June, they started attending as well. And they all really loved how it was integrated and how it was all together. There was a big African-American population community that came and um, they would actually, people would come into the church and and not like that. So they would like actually ask them to leave, be like, okay, you don't like it, then you can leave. You're not just going to be part of our church. So... That was a big draw for the People's Temple, the monkey-selling pastor. I mean, I'd want to see the monkeys. I'd I'd probably stop by on Sunday morning to see the monkeys. I don't think the monkeys were at church. They should have been. He would have got a lot more people in church just so he could see the monkeys. There was another documentary I watched. It's called Deceived, the Jonestown Tragedy by Mel White. And he talked to a lot of followers who ended up defecting from the group just to talk about like how they were deceived, how they were brought into this community. A member named Grace Stone, and remember her name because okay. the Stone family is going to come into play very, very big um, when everything starts to kind of reach ahead with Jonestown. Okay. Like, this is a really important family and what ends up happening. Grace Stone, she said she went to a church before coming to the People's Temple where no one really talked to each other, and... She didn't like it. She she wanted more of a community. So when she came to People's Temple for the first time, people would come up. They would introduce themselves. They would hug her. They would welcome her. They would ask her to come back. She said it was a great type of feeling. Another woman named Jeannie Mills said she felt that people cared about her when she came to the People's Temple. And again, they would come up and hug her. They wanted to know her thoughts on things. They wanted to know her opinions. So she was more involved in this church than other ones. A woman named Bonnie Thielman said that she had gone to a church in Southern California where people wouldn't even sit next to a black man who would come to church. Like they, the whole empty pew, no one would sit next to him. I'm sure God is very proud of them. Well, she's like, she decided she couldn't go to a church that sang about going to heaven and they won't even sit next to a black man. So she left and that's why she left People's Temple because of the integration and the different backgrounds and people and community. And Greystone was quoted as saying, to me, that was what life was all about, all of us together. I don't see how a lot of people at this time can be like, go to church and hear, like, love others as I've loved you and all this stuff. But, oh, won't sit next to a black man. No, it doesn't make any sense. How? How is that? I mean, do you not see the hypocrisy (laughs) right in front of your face? Goes on today, too. It does. It does. It really does. It's just, God. Okay. People's Temple on the surface and in the beginning was a really good idea. Like for the time, it was very radical for people who are wanting something more radical, more inclusive. Like this was perfect. And it was really 
kind of doing what the Bible preached to do. I like the way back then it's like radicalism it's radical. is equality today. <laughs> you know. I'm like, it's equality. And back then it's radicalism. The People's Temple also had programs um, that would help people get off drugs and then would help them get into college. It would actually like pay for their college. Um, a man named Larry Shocked had been one of those people. And Jones had picked him up off the street. He was a drug addict. And Jones helped him. Jones helped him get clean, helped him go to school. He went to medical school. He got his medical degree. Wow. Larry would then go on to become the doctor at Jonestown who helped carry out Jones's ultimate plan. Oh, yes. there's the turn. There's the turn. I was thinking, man, he's really doing, making some money. Like he's right. doing good by people. Like he's really helping this guy out. But again, like, yes, on the surface, like, go. yes, it seems great. Yeah. Like you really did something. I'm not going to say Jim Jones did something good for this man. I'm going to say the People's Temple did something good for this man. They really helped him. And then Jim Jones got in the way and ruined all of it. So um, these uh, these people, like the addicts, people he was helping get off the street, became some of the most dedicated people in People's Temple because they felt like they owed that they, they felt like they owed Jim Jones for what he did. So yeah. he's almost being like, "I'm your savior. Now you have to put me." in your highest possible regard and do whatever I want you to do. And honestly, that's probably one reason why he chose addicts and people on the street and homeless people to help out because then they would feel a feeling of obligation toward him. African-Americans. I mean, look what they're going through on a daily basis. And here is someone who's welcoming welcoming us into this community. Yeah, you are going to be very grateful toward the people that like pick you up from rock bottom and help you out. Right. But it's a form of manipulation and abuse so yeah there there were care homes for the elderly that the people's temple ran they were integrated they were thriving seniors were supported by the organization and received care and surgery that was paid for completely by the people's temple there were accredited teachers that would teach people right there in the people's temple children with mental disabilities were cared for there were youth programs so there was a lot for everybody to go to that was really helping people and tim stone he is Grace Stone's husband. Again, remember his name. Mm-hmm. Same says, family. Same family. It's her well, husband. Their husband and mm-hmm. wife. Yeah. But the, you mentioned the Stone family. Yes. So I'm just going to assume everybody mm-hmm. with Stone is related. Yeah. So he says, in the process, I thought I was really living out the gospel. Not only the concept concept of self-sacrifice, but the early church after Pentecost, where they sold what they had, shared what they had. I thought, what an ideal way. So yeah, like you read about this and you're like, yeah, I think if you believe in social change, if you believe in these more radical ideas, like this seems like the perfect place that you're going to go. I have a question. Yes. The other day when you were telling me that you were listening to a podcast at work or reading a book or something and your coworker come up to you and you're like, what communism. are you reading about? And you're like, communism. Yeah, was this was this it, podcast. wasn't it? I didn't want to give it up. <laughs> yes, I did read up on communism a it's little like bit. You're talking about communism a lot lately. I remember you reading a story about it. But it's really funny when someone asks you what you're reading and you're like, oh, I'm reading about communism well, and the communism. look that comes on their face. But then he was like, oh, I'm really interested in this too. Tell me what you learned. They're going to call the FBI on you. <laughs> so. You're on a list somewhere now. <laughs> Better not. Between your communism search history and mine all about Russia, like we're probably both on a list. Oh, Russia. <laughs> Our podcast is being flagged overseas. <laughs> In the 1960s, Jones would help integrate churches, restaurants, the Indianapolis Police Department, a movie theater, an amus- amusement park, and the Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. That's according God. to Wikipedia. Yes. So... 
this got him a lot of blowback because this wasn't something that people looked at in a favorable light. He would also call up known American Nazis and write their comments down and then pass it on to the media to be like, hey, this person said this. So he kind of out them. And he had swastikas painted on the temple. A dead cat was thrown at his house. However, some people believe that Jones did these things himself to further advance his cause. I was just going to ask. I mean, I could see it happening, but at the same time, you know, people would do that. And also, it's interesting to note at this time, the People's Temple, 75% were black, 25% were white. So, wow. And here's this white man preacher who's up there. And yeah, like the majority of his church is the African-American community because it's a place they can come and feel welcomed and that it's their own. Um, Jones and his wife, Marceline, adopted several children that they called their rainbow family. So they adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Suzanne, and Stephanie. They adopted Agnes, who is an American Indian. They had two white children. Tim, Cherokee, like who him. Was white. Tim, who was white, was adopted from a woman in the People's Temple. And then they had one biological child named Stefan. And then. So they were like Brad and Angelina before Brad and Angelina were Brad and Angelina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they also were the first white couple in Indiana to adopt an African American boy. And his name is Jim Jones Jr. So he did have an African American son who has his name. I hope the kid changed his name. I hope the kid lived through this, by the way. Jim Jones Jr. and then Stefan both survive, and I've they've been interviewed recently on stuff. Oh, he still okay. goes he still goes by Jim Jones Jr. as well. So really, mm-hmm. oh. probably too much paperwork to change your name yeah. at this point. I would. I mean, totally worth it at this point. <laughs> oh, I would if I had a name that was yeah like that, like Ted Bundy Jr. or something. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, changed my name. Jones started referring to himself as a prophet of God. And told his followers that people saw God in him. So people see God in me. I am a prophet of God. He also liked for them to call him father or dad. All of them called him father. Mm, A little weird. Mm -hmm. A little weird. I mean, Catholic people call their priest father. But it's like father. But it's a title. It's the name. It's a title. It's a title. They just call him dad. That's weird. Or father. Yes. Because Indiana was a very conservative and a little racist at the time well we're going to say a lot racist at the time it was not a really good place for jones to do what he wanted to do with the church was to fully integrate it and obviously a lot of problems came about it's not fully integrated by now well i think it is but i think they're getting so much pushback that it's like it's hard it's hard they're not comfortable and you're gonna not be able to get as many followers as you want when people won't come into that environment i guess he wants to feel like free in his church right So Jones and his immediate family around this time went to Belo Horizonte, Brazil, to try and set up a possible new location for People's Temple that they could go to. And the reason he picked this area was because um, he had a strong belief that there was going to be a nuclear holocaust. Well, I don't know if he strongly believed it, but he talked about it a lot in his sermons. Jones frequently preached his congregation about this nuclear holocaust and they need to prepare for it. And Brazil was said to be a safe place from where people could survive from the fallout if there was a nuclear holocaust. So that's why he went to Brazil. While in Brazil, Jones would make his first trip to Guyana, which was a British colony. He will go back to that. 
While in Brazil, Jones um, talked more about his communal life that he wanted to follow and not communism because he was in a foreign country and didn't want to um, draw attention to himself. So he studied the economy, their views on minorities. Um, Eventually, though, he started to feel really guilty about leaving his church behind in Indiana. People were starting to call him and being like, hey, the church is kind of crumbling without you here. So his family left Brazil and came back to Indiana. Um, however, this would start their first official planning that would happen to make the move to a new location for the People's Temple. That sentence might not have made sense, but we're just going to go with it. <laughs> it kind of it did. Their first town that they moved to out of Indiana was a town called Ukiah, and it was in Northern California, about 90 miles north of San Francisco. It was also listed in an Esquire magazine article as one of the nine places where the world could survive a nuclear attack. Again, a nuclear oh. attack. So um, California was also... Wait, was this article before or after I think he it moved? was the same article. And it was before. Okay. It was before. So like he saw that and he's like, let's go So he Ukiah. read it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was something coincidental that maybe it was afterward. No. Um, also, California was also very liberal liberal, and would be more accepting of an integrated church so Jones could continue his cause. But how do you think he got his people to move out to California and give up everything that they had? He did this by telling them on July 15th, 1967, there would be a nuclear war and the result would be a, quote, new socialist Eden on Earth. And the only way for the temple to survive was to move to Ukiah. Okay. People literally gave up their homes, their jobs, left their family to move to Ukiah. Remember the the monkey, the monkey buying lady, Edith? Yeah. So her son. Did she ever get her monkey? She got her monkey, but she made a bad decision. Oh, no. Eugene, her her son Eugene, told her that if you follow Jimmy to California, you're crazy. This was according, this is, he's quoted as saying this in the um, Jonestown documentary. So what Jones did was take Edith to a, psycho- a psychiatrist and got a letter that stated she was of sound mind and sent it to Eugene. And Eugene watched his mom drive away to California, and he's quoted as saying, I didn't know I'd never see her again. That was the last he ever saw of his mom. So I think it's kind of interesting how things are shifting now. Like, he's starting to be like, okay, the world's going to end, so we need to do this. Like, you need to give up your homes, you need to give up your jobs, you need to give up your family, and you need to come with me. It seems kind of, well, not like sudden, but like, what's the reasoning behind this? Usually people kind of have like a slow... Like decline into it or well, something kind of been makes them it's snap, been a couple of years. It, like just like I'm gonna go to Brazil and then I'm gonna come back home and we're gonna have nuclear war. So follow me over here to California. Well, and they did. A lot of people did. They moved to Ukiah and had a really great like communal, you know, a communal setting. They all, you know, worked in the same place. They all got health care and dental care and all of that. I say they worked in this place. They worked they worked in this place on top of having their own their own regular full-time job, but I'll kind of talk about what people's normal schedule was like when they devoted their life to People's Temple. While in Ukiah, Jones bought several Greyhound buses so the people te- People's Temple could travel around the country and preach to people. While doing this, the group would sell things to make money. However, these Monkeys? things were a sham. No, they would sell healing oils, which was really olive oil. 
They would sell scraps of Jim Jones's robes that were actually pieces of clothing picked up from thrift stores along the way. Okay, he's not the Beatles. They used to cut up Beatles bed sheets in hotels and sell them like to people that they slept in. But no, ew. Photos of Jim Jones were upcharged to new members to make more money. He's still in pictures of himself now. Yes. Yep. But something was working because they were picking up people along the way. They bring them back to California, and at this point, where the um, this point, the population of People's Temple grew from just under 100 to a few thousand people. Jeez. Yeah. Things are escalating. He must not preach anything about like the sins of glut, uh, not gluttony, but like greed and, and pride and all that stuff. Jim Jones, he always expected people to tithe a certain amount to the People's Temple. So give a certain amount of their income, just like people do for mm-hmm. churches. Probably more than 10%. Mm-hmm. So what he would do in Ukiah is he started preaching a regular 20% tithing, but also to completely sell your home and give the money nope. to the church. And nope, people that. would do it. People would sell their of homes they and did. give the money to the church. <laughs> Why would they not? <laughs> because they saw, you know what? He has this good cause. We're living this good life. Yeah, I'm going to do where that. Do they li- well, I was going to say, where do they live? But I know the answer to that. Yeah. He would also take people's social security checks and use that money for the church. And the people would do this because they would point to everything he had been doing for the community and be like, look at all the ways he's helping the community. We need to give back and help him do this. This is like where your socialism, communism is starting to fall apart a little bit. Because now you have one person that's like hoarding all the wealth and making all the rules and distributing it out. This is not the... This is is where the break happens. Right. And where it stops working. Right. Life in the community was really like a part-time job for people on top of their re- regular jobs that they had outside the community. There's a member, her name's Laura Johnston Cole. She survived. She ended up defecting. She worked her regular eight Good to five job. And then she would come in afterwards to do filing for the temple. Every week they would have meetings in Redwood Valley, which is where Ukiah was located. Um, that would last until about 10, 30 at night. She would get off work on Fridays. She would get on a bus to go to San Francisco for the weekend. Sometimes there would be meetings there from, you know, until like two, three in the morning. And then on Sunday morning, they would have morning service back on the bus at one o'clock, drop people off along the way, and then go back to the Ukiah church. So you have no life outside of work in church. I'm surprised he even lets them have jobs outside of the church. Well, Temple members were required to turn in paychecks that they got in their jobs, and they would get an allowance of $5 a week. They were turning in their money to the temple for their jobs. Oh, jeez. A man named Hugh Forston Jr., who also defected, said in the Jim Jones Jonestown documentary that it created an environment that kept people constantly busy and on their feet and exhausted. They were made to feel guilty for sleeping too much or taking naps. And he is quoted as saying, you tend to not really think for yourself. And I did allow Jim Jones to think for me because I figured he had the better plan. I gave my rights up to him as many others did. These people are exhausted and they're just robots and zombies at this point because they're not. And you're going to say yes to everything because you just don't have the energy to fight or push back on it. But you're expected to do all this for, quote, the cause. If you're a good people's temple member, you have to help out with the cause. Yeah, you're either with us or against us. So this is when Jones, (laughs) this is when Jones starts doing his faith healing 
but it wasn't faith healing. It was all a sham. He would have people in his inner circle spy on temple members and get little pieces of information that they would pass on to Jones. So they would go through trash cans. They would listen in on phone conversations, have phones bugged to get intel on members. And then Jones could use that intel to, quote, heal members of whatever ailment people were suffering from. And they would just convince themselves that they were healed. They would believe him. Also, what he liked to do, and especially on road trips, when he was going to new communities and churches where people didn't know the members, he would have people planted in the audience, his own members planted in the audience, so they could die and he could bring them back to life. <laughs> yes. So that was a funny sentence. <laughs> no, people, his little. He's a big scam artist. His, his little fake plants would die of a heart attack or stroke and then he would run up and he would heal them and they would be alive but really they were just an actor but he would claim he had power over death i would love for there to have been a doctor in the congregation somewhere and the guy can step step back i'm a doctor and like he checks his pulse i'm like he's alive get up dude (laughs) yep one member remembers a time where he healed quote healed a woman in a wheelchair so this woman they were told had not been able to walk and so jones told her stand up take a few steps so the woman did she took a few steps and then he's like okay go ahead and walk and she walked and then he's like all right run down the aisle and this like old elderly woman takes off running down the aisle and everyone's cheering and they're excited and they're running with her because they're like oh my god this is amazing she's healed well they later found out the woman was actually one of jones's secretaries he had put makeup on to make her look old and disabled and the whole thing was fake. So do people not know? I'm like, hey, I've never seen this woman in this wheelchair before at this church. Like, it was a new member. Not, unless they're freaking huge ones. They or, were pretty. It yeah. was thousands of people. So. Ugh. And he would even faith heal himself. Oh, I'm surprised he has anything that's warrant that warrants healing. I'm surprised he's not perfect. Well, what he did was he faked getting shot outside of the temple. He faked an attack. How do you fake getting shot? Apparently he did it. There was fake blood and everything. And so he gets carried back into the church. And then he emerges completely fine, holding up his bloodied shirt and showing the bullet wound that is gone. But however, no one seemed to notice that there was no bullet hole in the shirt. They just ignored it and didn't really... <sighs> Didn't really think. He didn't think his plan through. But they believed well, him. Well, he obviously went and he found the Holy Grail, like Indiana Jones <laughs> did in the Last Crusade, and he poured it over it just like they did over Sean Connery when he got yeah, shot. And, then and he had to save them. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, that's what happened. Go Jim Jones. So the next thing Jones did was he started what he called his planning commission. And interesting fact, this is actually a Soviet term that is used. So oh, planning commission okay. was about half the membership and Jones broke them down into smaller groups and agencies. So it was like this tiered system of these committees, I guess that are running the church, but it's this tiered system that competes against each other for his attention. Oh my God. Yeah. They all want his attention. So he's doing this purposefully. I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like this is a lot of people to control. Like how is one person doing this for like thousands of people now? But Okay, then. Very subtly. He's so into himself. This is also when, like, Jones finally started to, like, shift and reveal his true nature and all the kind of shady things he was starting to do. A lot of this inner circle is seeing the lies for the faith healing, and they're just being told, ignore it. It's it's a means to an end. So just kind of go along with it, whatever. Also important to note that a big chunk of this planning commission were white women. 
the majority of the church is African-American. The majority yeah, of why, the planning commission. Yeah, are his people of color representatives? Like, not only white people, but white women. So, like, I almost feel like that's a form of control. Like, mm. he did that perf- purposefully, too. Obviously, you know, white women are... I hope this isn't, like, some Nexium stuff about to happen. No, but he did have some Nexium type of qualities where um, he would have people sign. He called it an attendance sheet. They would just sign their name at the bottom of this blank sheet of paper and then if yeah. you defected if you tried to leave people would take that that out with your signature and write confessions on it to crimes and murders and whatever because they have your signature here's my confession with my signature already on In there totally different handwriting <laughs> or type it you type it but you have a signature so there you go so that's, that's so very nexium very nexium yeah dude i wonder what his parents think about all this they probably think he's fine they don't really talk about his parents well i think actually his mom did follow him to jonestown and that they said she was the only person who could really stand up to him and then when she died it was just a free-for-all but at the same time too like that's your kid you're probably going to want to be supportive Mm -hmm. and she probably doesn't know all this inside stuff because people are going to keep things from their parents yeah Jones started drifting away from preaching like a normal pastor about the Bible and God and started. Oh, okay. (laughs) So like before he still like preached from the Bible, he still preached about God, but he really started to turn more toward talking about activism. And he would actually take the Bible and tell the temple members that the Bible had been used to hold the African-Americans down for centuries. He talked about the sky God and at one point actually threw the Bible across the church to be like, see, nothing happened. It's all a lie. This book doesn't matter. And he's quoted as saying, you're going to help yourself or get no help. There's only one hope of glory, and that's within you. Nobody's going to come out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. Okay. Again, you're seeing another shift in him as he's like kind of, all right, now we're going to start talking. We're going to start drifting away more from your normal like church kind of sermons into something a little different. He was quoted also as saying to people, if you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. If you see me as your father, I'll be your father. If you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. Oh, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. I see you as full of yourself. Yes. Yeah, so you have to kind of wonder like what what are these people thinking at this time? Like are they having doubts, but then because they've devoted this much time and energy to it, are they then just being like, but look at all the people he's helped and look at the people he's healed. So he really is good. So I'm just going to ignore some of this stuff. That or he just slow. It's like getting into really hot water. You have to ease yourself into it. And once you're in it fully immersed, it doesn't feel that hot. But if you just splash into it, you're going to jump out because it's going to burn it's you the frog in the so by now water. they've been gradually introduced into all this and sold their houses and they live on this like all live together and have the cause mm-hmm. so i mean he's just gradually just indoctrinating them mm-hmm. and they don't see anything wrong with it because this is their life now too it's the frog in the boiling pot of water that analogy yeah. like you throw a frog i've always heard this analogy and i love it you throw a frog in a boiling pot of water it jumps out because it's hot it hurts yep. you put a frog in a normal thing of water and slowly turn up the heat until it's boiling the frog will boil itself to death because it doesn't get out yep. because it doesn't realize what's happening so i think this is what's happening to people oh yeah this gets bad so if a member does something wrong, then they would endure sometimes brutal punishment from the temple members. These were called 
quote, catharsis sessions, and they could last for hours and hours. And I bet he recorded them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's recordings. So when I say doing something wrong, that could be anything. That could be chewing a piece of gum, eating a piece of candy. People were called up to the front for and forced to name everybody that they had slept with because they weren't supposed to be having sex. That was seen as selfish. So if you expressed a doubt to a member, then Jim Jones was told about it and you would be forced to endure this punishment. Punishments included beatings with a paddle, being slapped, screamed at, and even all-out boxing matches where Jones and members would cheer and yell insults at the person who was being punished. Kids were not exempt from this. Kids were beat and forced to box adults while being screamed at from members, including their family. There were meetings that would last for hours on end into the night, and they were forced to stay awake through it. There would be people in the planning commission that would be walking around and making sure that people were staying awake, and if you weren't, you could be beaten. There was a woman named Neva Sly Hargrave. She had an experience where she was beat so hard she had welts, and someone at her job, like her regular full-time job, saw her and saw the welts and Neva broke down crying. So they called management to get her out, you know, to help like talk her into getting out. And according to Neva, she said she couldn't even say goodbye to her son and husband because it was quote, like the Gestapo where families would turn in their own families. So, I was just saying, this is like some Nazi Germany behavior mm-hmm. here. And they separate the families. And that's another thing. I read a really good article that talked about um, terrorist organizations. And that's what they do. They separate you from your family. They isolate you. They try to break up that relationship. Because if you don't have those connections, you're more likely to be controlled. Temple members were heavily criticized for keeping connections with family and with their marriages and with their kids. And if you tried to keep this relationship up, your loyalty to the temple would be questioned. So they would really isolate you. There's a website. It's called Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple. And it is, I highly recommend it for all the information on this. It's got tons of writings from members who got out. It's got a list of everyone who died. It's got everything. Jones also preached that he was the only heterosexual man on the planet and everybody else was homosexual. Okay. So he wanted everybody to remain celibate except for himself. He would sleep with several people in a day and then he would talk about it up on his pulpit and he would say that he needed to do it and it was a favor for those people and he had to do it because his wife wasn't able to carry out her wifely duties anymore. So he needed to have these affairs. He would sleep with both male and females of the temple, married and unmarried. And sometimes husbands would let their wives sleep with him. I mean, I think let is probably a loose term. They probably had no choice. But to- Right. Yeah, that's going to definitely come into play. This is, it went from being this like nice church with like equality and integration and like help people go to medical school and helping the homeless. And now we're straight up cult. It's worse. On New Year's Eve one year, there was a New Year's Eve celebration, and Jones allowed them to drink some alcohol, which was big. Oh, wow. They were big supposed deal. to give alcohol out. So he hands out the alcohol, passes it out. They drink it. And then he looks at them and says, you've just drank poison, and you're going to die in 45 minutes. So obviously, people are panicking. They're panicking. They're thinking yeah. they're going to die. He's like, nope, we're going to die together in this church as one. Some people just sat there. 
Eventually, he tells them, oh, just kidding, you haven't drank poison, but that was a loyalty test because I want to know who of you is committed to this cause and who will actually die for me if I say that's needed. Who would actually die for me. Like, not for the cause, not for beliefs, not for anything great or good mm-hmm. for me. That's very mm-hmm. telling. Yep. A woman, a defector named Janet Schuler, she said that she saw this as more of a test for Jones himself that he put on himself to see if he was powerful enough at that point to make yeah. people kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And she says, quote, that frightened the hell out of me. That's a good assessment. Mm-hmm. 1974 is when the group moves, they make another move and they go to San Francisco because Jones isn't getting the amount of followers that he needs in Ukiah. So he decides what better place to kind of advance this cause, the socialism cause, all of it, than San Francisco. You think there's a lot going on in San Francisco at the time. You know, People's Temple was seen as all like any rally or march or anything that was going on, you would call the people's temple and they're like, Hey, we're there. We'll help you with your cause. We'll bring a couple hundred people and we'll march. Um, Jones got involved in politics at this point. He helped out um, vice presidential candidate, Walter Mondale. When he came to San Francisco, Jones was part of a group that met with him privately. He met privately with Rosalind Carter when she was in town. People's temple was given a lot of credit for, um, George Moscone winning the mayoral election in San Francisco in 1975. And because of that, Jim Jones was appointed to chairman of city housing authority in San Francisco. People's temple members would actually come to these boring meetings and they would stand up and cheer when he talked. So they said it kind of felt like a very circus type of atmosphere. How do you get anything done? It's like, like I'm really trying to like pass some policy here. We need to get some, some, he doesn't some care. He just wants to just, just, He just wants the praise. Jones was becoming really paranoid at this point, and he would tell people that they were a progressive movement that was threatened and that the government was going to try and get rid of them, and he'd tell people that they were going to try to assassinate him. Also around this time, he started taking a lot of drugs, a whole lot of drugs. He told people he had health problems, but later in autopsies after he died, there was, they said, an ungodly level of illegal drugs found in his system. You mean he didn't faith heal himself? No, he didn't faith heal himself. He was just taking drugs. <laughs> Jeez. Yep. So, nice. but he told people that he needed those drugs to keep that strong connection to God. That was his reasoning for taking all the drugs that he did. Okay. Um, It was around this time, it was 1975 in December, 90 of its members flew to Guyana in Brazil, not Brazil, in South America, where they were going to get the... I mean, Brazil is in South America. Guyana is its own country. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because you're like, they flew to Brazil in South America. (laughs) Guyana (laughs) in South America. I almost said it's in Brazil. It's not in Brazil. They got the first look at the community that was being built for them to move into and this would become known as Jonestown. Several members moved to Guyana to start building this community and kind of get everything ready and then videos would be sent back to the people in the states to be like hey look at this wonderful community is being built for you and we're gonna you know that's where we're gonna go except a lot of this was lies because you know, the soil wasn't very great in Guyana for growing food. So Jones would go buy food from the markets in like the capital of Jonestown or Port Kaituma, where they had to fly into. He would go buy all this like fresh fruit and vegetables and then bring it back 
and make it seem like on the videos, oh, this was grown here. See these beautiful bananas? Like they were all grown here. They weren't. They were bought at market. But yeah, he didn't think yeah. that through. But people believed him. So in 1977, there was a journalist named Marshall, Marshall Kilduff, and he worked for New West Magazine. He was approached by several people who had defected, who finally were like, we want to spoke out, speak out against Jones about what's going on at the People's Temple. And this was a huge deal because when people left and defected, they were threatened. They were threatened death. They were told by Jones, something's going to happen to you. It's going to look like an accident. You're going to die. So really, like, people who decided to leave, you you see how bad it has to be where you know, like, there's a really good chance I'm going to be killed if I leave, but it's better than staying here. I'll take my chances. Marshall Kilduff wrote this article. It was very damning to Jones and the People's Temple, and the defectors talked about everything that had gone on, like all the punishments, the Social Security checks being stolen, the work hours, all of it. And somehow Jones convinced the editor of the magazine to read him the full article the day before it was going to go to print. So as she's reading this article to him over the phone, he's getting even more scared. And he writes a note to his followers who are surrounding him. And the note says, we leave tonight. And hours before the article was released, Jim Jones and several members of of his inner circle flew out of the United States to Guyana and onto Jonestown with an order for the rest of People's Temple members to follow him. So this is the sort of Jonestown. So he escaped. He realized this article is going to come out. I'm going to be in serious trouble. I could be in serious legal trouble with all of this. Oh, yeah. So you need to leave the country before. I'm leaving. I wonder if Guyana, I wonder if they extradite. Um, That's a big reason why he picked Guyana is because of their Uh, extradition law. There you go. Jonestown actually started back in 1973. So this was when Jones and um, his attorney, Tim Stone, decided they needed to begin this plan of like a contingency plan of where People's Temple would relocate. Same Stone family as before? Same Stone. Okay. Same Stone. Tim and Grace Stone. Okay. I forgot the husband's name. Yeah. And he was the attorney. He worked as an attorney for, he was a legal advisor for Jim Jones. He was very trusted by him. Several options were thrown out, such as fleeing to Canada or a Caribbean missionary post. And that is why Guyana was chosen as this Caribbean missionary post. I guess it's, I don't think that's considered Caribbean, but that's what they called it. But Jones chose Guyana because of their views on socialism, on the economy, and their extradition laws. In 1973, the People's Temple Planning Commission passed a resolution to establish an agricultural project in Guyana. That's what they chose it. Okay. The the place where they can't grow anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, just checking. Guyana was also small and poor, and Jones thought that it would be easier for him to gain influence there and protection when he needed it. Also, according to Tim Carter, who was a member who would go through the awful, awful final day in Jonestown, um, but obviously survived. He said, because the population of Guyana was mostly made up of indigenous people people, and several government members were black, this meant that Guyana could offer a very peaceful place for African-Americans who had suffered so greatly in the United States. So in 1974, People's Temple and Guyana officials um, negotiated a lease that would give them 3,800 acres for this agricultural project. 
It was in the jungle, and it was about 150 miles west of Georgetown, which was the capital. It was very isolated. The soil was crap, and it was seven miles over muddy roads to the nearest water source. Jeez. So, tend to think that like Jones really had no intention of making this last. No, it was probably just a temporary escape until he figured out what to do. So, yeah, I don't think he really had any intention of them ever leaving that place. I think he knew something was going to happen. Also, it's convenient for him to where he could do what he wanted. Yeah. On the surface, it looked like the perfect yeah. place because that's right. the PR exactly. that he could put forward. Just like you said, it's a poor country. There's a black population. It's like where we can go do some good. And this is why we're here. Right. Right. On the surface, it I'm looks the white so savior good. coming for you. Like when you take Jim Jones out of it and you just look at what they wanted to do for this commune type of situation, this mm-hmm. commune type of like, it's really good on the surface. Yeah. But he had to come in and mess all of it up. So several members went before the rest of the People's Temple came. So they started clearing the land. They started constructing the town. And they said it was actually really fun at first. It was, you know, they had good food at the time because there weren't a lot of people there. They would play music. They would dance. They would have movie nights. So they were really having a good time. And Jim Jones Jr., his son, he said how good it was for African-American people to come there because it was like, finally, they have something of their own. Yeah. It's their own place. They own a part of it because everyone owns it. So it was something really good for them. And like you watch videos of these people before everything went really bad and they're like having fun and they're dancing and it looks like a really good place before Jones got there officially. Jones, however, saw this as of course. a socialist paradise and a sanctuary for media scrutiny because he hated the media. Of course he did. So, and Guyana was okay with having them, like, this mass migration from all these people come because Jones said, hey, we're skilled, we're progressive. Any assets that we have, we're going to invest it back into Guyana. Plus, they so, got a lot of money. You're hey. bringing a lot of money with them. Yeah, give us permission for this help mass them migration out. into your country. So they're like, yeah, sure. Like, we'll go ahead and we'll bring you in. They also had a house in the capital of Georgetown. So that was kind of like their house. It was held offices and everything. So like people could stay there as they're transitioning to Jonestown. And in 1977, right before the newspaper article, that's when several hundred more members of the People's Temple came to Jonestown. And the fun stopped. Everything changed, they said, as soon as Jim Jones walked onto the property. And it was just like this dark cloud came over everything. And it was bad. It was very, very bad. There was a loudspeaker that Jim's would speak on through the whole day and sometimes through the night where he would record himself talking. And it would play constantly, like 24-7, even when people were trying to sleep. They had one ham radio and there was no... No way else to get any news from the outside. The only news that Jonestown members would get would be what Jim Jones told them was happening. That was their only source of information. There were no newspapers, no phones, no TVs. Mail going out was read. So he would read all the mail to make sure you're not sending things you're not supposed to to your family members. Family members that were writing the letters were sometimes just thrown away because Jones wanted his members to think that, hey, like your family doesn't want you anymore. They don't care about you. They're not even writing you. Members said they always felt like they were under attack in Jonestown. Jones would tell them that the U.S. was getting worse and that they were putting 
African-Americans and African-American sympathizers in concentration camps that they were shooting people in the streets. So be like, obviously, you know, we can't go back there. We don't want to go back there. Look how bad it's getting. Jones would also take people's passports when they got there. He'd keep them locked up so they couldn't get to them. So if you decide, oh, I I want to leave, you can leave. Um, He was getting sicker. He was sounding even more off the wall. He was sounding more frantic. His drug use was becoming worse. He was slurring his speech. You listen to some, like he recorded everything and you listen to some of these speeches and it's like his words are slurred and things don't make sense. Sometimes, according to a member named Deborah Layton, he would come over the speaker and say he's going to send someone out that they knew and trusted into the community. And this person was going to act like they wanted to leave. So this was a loyalty test. You know, are you going to turn this person in? You're expected to turn this person in. Anyone wants to leave, you have to let me know. The paranoia would drive me insane. Yeah, but you become paranoid too because yeah, literally not, everything like, I do, I'd be wonder: is somebody going to say something to me? Should I say something to them? Like I just that feeling of being having something over you all the time would drive me nuts. Yeah, and say that you do want to leave, and then someone comes up to you and they're like, "Hey, I really want to get out of here." Then you're like, "Ugh, okay, is this person an ally? Can they be an ally and we can get out together, or is this a test and I have right. to turn him in?" Or is it the test for you? Yeah, yeah. It's either your test yeah. or their test. Yeah, so no one can trust anybody. And you can't talk about it. You no. can't talk about it if you're feeling unhappy because even, like, kids would turn in their parents. That's how brainwashed they were. And kids were raised communally at this point. Like, you gave your kid up to be raised by the community because that's what you're supposed to do. That's part of the cause. Work was six days a week from 6.30 a.m. to 6 o'clock p.m., Sometimes they'd be woken up even earlier to start. Seems like he's got a little more lenient on the work hours. 6.30 to 6? Well, yeah, before they were working like 20 hours a day and coming back yeah. after their 8 to 5 jobs. And now he's giving them a little time off. Yeah, except you're working in the fields in the hot jungle. And in places where things won't grow. Yeah, they said even lunch, it's like by the time you walk back to where you're getting lunch and stand in line, like you're not even having time to eat lunch. God, surprised he even gives them lunch, to be honest with you. Well, we'll talk about the food. It wasn't anything to be excited about. How bad it wasn't. After work, they would be required to attend activities in the pavilion. That was like their big meeting area. Um, They had to take classes on socialism. They weren't allowed to watch the regular movies that they watched before he got there. Like all of them were like Soviet propaganda and anti-American movies that he would make people watch. He would quiz them on it. No one could read or watch anything without someone from his inner circle um, present. So they could, quote, interpret what was being seen by the viewers so they're being told like here's what you're watching and here's what it means this is some north korea shit yes well they admired north korea (laughs) of course they wanted to that's one place they wanted to run to like i said the soil in jonestown sucked and they couldn't grow a lot so they lived on rice rice water soup gravy and beans for three meals a day on sundays they would get an egg and a cookie if sometimes they might get a vegetable If you were sick or you were old, you got an egg every day. Sometimes people would eat in the dark so that they wouldn't have to see the bugs that had been cooked into their food. Oh, my God. Yes, because you live in the jungle and there's bugs around. Yeah, but they didn't get a lot of food, so they would eat what they got. Of course, Jones ate really well because he lived in a house 
almost by himself with his wife and mistresses and a couple kids. And he had a fridge that was stocked with plenty of food and drinks. He had meat on a regular basis, so he was doing well. While everyone else lived in communal houses that were twice the amount of people that they were built for. So I believe that they were supposed to house like maybe like 10 people, 8 to 10 people. They were in houses with 20 people. And then punishment was awful. Again, there was a box that was six by four by three that three feet that people would be shut into for an extended period of periods of time. And children were sometimes forced to spend the night at the bottom of a well, sometimes hung oh upside down and they called it the torture hole. Oh my God. Yep. And there was also what they call the extended care unit, where if people misbehaved or tried to escape, they were sent to this extended care unit and they were given drugs such as Thorazine, sodium pentothal, Demerol, or Valium to pretty much just drug you and make you a zombie. Oh, God. Um, Jones also started importing guns under the guise that they were, quote, Bibles. So the boxes said Bible shipments, but they were guns. Okay, nobody checks the imports. Good to know. No, well, he kind of paid off some of the officials. Yeah. And it was kind of like, hush, hush, we'll give you this back if you let us get these guns in. So it soon became an armed encampment. Jones started having what he called white nights. These were rallies or drills that would be announced over the loudspeaker at all times during the day, sometimes in the middle of the night. So he would gather everyone in this in this pavilion, announcing a white night, some kind of emergency, and he would say there's a threat to Jonestown, and he would give his members four options on how to handle it. He'd say, we can flee to the Soviet Union, stay and fight, flee into the jungle, or commit revol revolutionary suicide. Flee to the Soviet Union. Do you want to know what most people chose? Probably commit suicide. Yes, they chose revolutionary suicide, and they would line up one by one, and they were all passed a drink. They were told to had poison in it, and they would drink it until they have 45 minutes to live. And then, obviously, the 45 minutes were up, and they were told, just kidding, this was just a it drill. It was a test. This was a loyalty test. And they, you know, but Jones would tell them, hey, this, you know, isn't far off where we might have to do this. But he would do it over and over and over. So people just became numb to it. They're like, so they're like, we're not going to die. Right. It's not poison. It's Don't worry about another it. Another white night. Or they just didn't care. Like yeah. one of them said, like, she was just like, I didn't really care at that point if it was poison or not. Like I was just so brain dead and so tired and sleep deprived and hungry that I didn't even care. And what they didn't know that was since 1976, Jones had been getting regular shipments of cyanide into Jonestown because he had somehow obtained a jeweler's license. And I guess that's how jewelers clean their jewelry is oh, by cyanide. Geez. So he had obtained that license and he started getting regular shipments. So also kind of interesting to note the term white knight when the mm -hmm. majority of your population is African-American. That's like the Watchmen because we've been watching the Watchmen on Hulu and I'm not familiar with it like at all. I only knew from like Hulu, and there's like a lot of racism in it. And they had this mm -hmm. event that they called the White Knight where a bunch of people went and they killed a lot of the black people in town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was all the white racist people. It was like kind of like a KKK organization. I forget what they call them. And that's what they called that event. So. Yeah. So that's, I think that's why he purposefully chose that phrase of White Knight. All right. So I mentioned the stones. Yeah. Tim and Greystone mm -hmm. being very important. They have been loyal followers of 
of Jones. Um, both had been on the planning commission. Tim Stone had been a close aide and a friend to Jones, providing legal advice. Tim and Grace had a baby named John. Two weeks after he was born, Tim signed an affidavit, oh, no. affidavit stating that Jim Jones was the father of John, even though he was not. Oh, my God. Yes. So, but this allowed Jones to take baby John, child John, with him to Guyana, even when Grace defected and escaped the people's temple. But she left without her son because she feared for her son's life if she tried to take him away. So what she did was she started a legal battle for custody I to think, get John okay. back. Good. Yeah, she wasn't just going to leave him there. She's like, I'm, I'm going like, to go through the legal battle. Because I'm like, this is not that long ago, and there's mm-hmm. avenues you could take. Just because you signed this paper saying it's not yours doesn't mean that, I mean, it, there's other methods to establish paternity and all this stuff. Like, No, she's like, heck no, like, I'm getting my son back. Right. So she actually threatened Tim with divorce and said, like, if you don't, do this i'm divorcing you and that scared jim jones because he knew if there's this lawsuit that comes out against tim that's going to put way too much attention on the people's temple on me and this custody battle so he sent tim who was in um who wasn't in jonestown well let's see so yeah so tim was actually sent to jonestown where he lived um where he would live and work there to kind of like get him out of the public eye But then while he was there, Temple members were spying on Tim. They weren't trusting him. And within a year, Tim was fed up and he ended up defecting, came back to the States, and he joined Grace in his custody battle for John to get him back. So therefore, he became public enemy number one for Jones. And And they used to be besties. They were best friends. But Jones saw saw this as a threat because he's like, if this guy is taken away from me. Yeah, if this kid gets taken away from me, then that's my power getting taken away from me. So we can't have that happen. And there was actually a warrant which a warrant issued for Jones's arrest when he ignored several court orders. And this led to what was called the six-day siege, where Jones staged an attack on himself. And he told all of his followers that Jonestown was being surrounded and attacked by outsiders, and they were instructed to stand guard with guns and machetes to protect him. So people stood guard day and night for six days around the jungle, day in and day out, to try and protect him from this fake siege that had happened. And then after this all happened, Jones began to think that they needed to have another exodus of People's Temple and its followers. So... All the members started calling embassies in other countries, like asking about their immigration policies to see like, hey, maybe we can migrate there. Jones wrote to North Korea and Albania saying, hey, will you take us? Soviet Union, Cuba and Yugoslavia were also contacted. I feel like there's no way, like in a way, it kind of surprises me that he would want to go to North Korea. I mean, I can see why he would want to go to North Korea. But they wouldn't stand for it there because, like, no, you're not the deer leader. Like, I'm the deer leader. (laughs) You know, it's like he would be the smallest fish in the big pond and they just Mm -hmm. wouldn't stand for him doing that there. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. He wasn't really thinking that through. No. I mean, if he knew anything about North Korea, I mean, he's doing exactly what they're doing, but on a smaller scale. But there's no way they would let him in. A group formed and they called themselves the Concerned Relatives. This was about in late 1977. These were people who had defected from the temple, also family members of people who were still currently in the temple, and they were concerned. They're like, we need some public attention on what's going on in Georgetown. 
because we want to know if our if our family members are okay. They wrote several of their congressmen to be like, hey, can you write your own letters to the prime minister in Guyana to figure out what is happening? And one of the congressmen that wrote was Congressman Leo Ryan of California. He will be important later. Okay. Very important later. The concerned relatives wrote letters and affidavits that they gave to members of Congress titled Accusations of Human Rights Violations by Reverend Jim Jones. They filed lawsuits against Jones seeking $56 million in damages. Um, The Temple's attorney, Charles Gary, then countersued and sued Tim Stone for $150 million in damages, saying, I guess, he had wronged him. Okay. (laughs) Jones also hired two men at this point named Mark Lane and Donald Free to help him build a case of grand conspiracy against the Temple by U.S. intelligence agencies. Okay. What's funny is that these two men were most known for their conspiracy theories regarding JFK's assassination. So they would go on TV and they would claim that they were disinterested parties that were claiming publicly that the CIA, FBI, and even the U.S. Postal Service were out to get Jonestown. The Postal Service. Yes. Yes. Okay. So they're saying all these people in the media, they're all out to get jones he's a really good person this is a really good community we're just disinterested parties that have no you know no connection to this except no, you're that being they paid were, probably they were being paid six thousand dollars per <laughs> month by jones to come yeah. up with these conspiracy there it theories. Is. so there it is it's like if the postal service had this big conspiracy against you they would just stop delivering your checks <laughs> so i mentioned um congressman leo ryan yeah he this is kind of when stuff starts to like really snowball He started paying a lot of attention to the temple defectors and even had a friend who claimed that his son, who had defected from the temple, had been killed because of that defection. So after hearing this, um, Congressman Ryan decided he was going to go visit Jonestown and he just wanted to see if the people were okay. He wanted to look into the well-being. It was like this congressional delegation, just like, let's see what's going on, make sure everything's okay. So they traveled to Jonestown on November 14th, 1978. It was Congressman Ryan, along with his aide, Jackie Spear, um, a man named Richard Dwyer. He was um, Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. to Guyana. There was Tim Reiterman, who I mentioned before. He was a reporter. There was a photographer, Greg Robinson, a re- NBC reporter, Don Harris, cameraman Bob Brown, audio tech Steve Sung, Producer Bob Flick, a reporter, Charles Krause, San Francisco reporter, Ron Javers, and then several members of the concerned relatives. Damn, everybody's coming. Greystone. Yes, which is important to note because a lot of people will blame these people for what happened in Jonestown, saying, You brought all these people, you brought all these reporters, and Jim Jones felt threatened. And that's why he reacted the way that he did. Yeah. But they just wanted to document it. They're like, the people right. kind of deserve documentation of this. We have a party coming. There's right. a party coming. And Jonestown is preparing by being quizzed on how to answer some of these questions that might be asked of them. Because obviously, Jim Jones is paranoid and doesn't want people to say the wrong thing. So people are asked question after question after question. And he will tell them how to properly respond. And then if you don't pass these quizzes, then you're just told, just avoid the press. Don't even talk to them. Just go hide somewhere. Just go hide. Just go hide. Just don't talk to them. 
and his health is still deteriorating at this time. You know, he has a lung infection, but he's telling people I have lung cancer probably to feel sorry for him. His messages are even worse. Like they're pretty much incoherent at this point. He doesn't even finish sentences. So things are really, really going downhill. It's something how he's in such bad health and people still kind of follow him blindly and do what he tells them to do. Yeah. Like, does he have like, I don't want to say minions, but like, does he have like second command or like bodyguards or like people? It's like, look, if they don't do this, then go hurt them or make them do the boxing match or do something. He has nurses that are administering his drugs, but then he's got the people who are walking around with the guns now in the armed camp. So that's true. So it is a very threatening environment. Pretty much everybody's his bodyguard at this point. Leo Ryan's delegation they land in Guyana and they're originally told by Jones's attorney, nope, you're not allowed to come to Jonestown. And then they're told the next day, oh, we'll leave by the afternoon to go to Jonestown. So I see this as like a control thing of he's making the decisions. He's telling them, no, you can't come. Then he's telling them, yes, you can come. So I think that's his way of like controlling everything. Right. On November 17th, they go to Port Kaituma. It's an airstrip that's about six miles from Jonestown. It's a small plane, so they're told that only four of the concerned relatives are going to be allowed to go on this plane, along with Ryan, his aide, and then the reporters. From Port Kaituma, Leo Ryan went with three others into Jonestown first, and then the rest of the crew, um, like the news crew, they followed behind at sunset in another car. And reporter Tim Reederman said that he remembers how it was very obvious how the group visiting was at the mercy of the people of Jonestown because of how remote the area was. Like, it was into the jungle. So he's like, yeah, like, there's really no easy way to get out if we need to get out. But at the same time, he's like, it was also very impressive of what they had managed to do, like, out of the jungle on their own. They had built this encampment. So he was really impressed by that. When they were there, they saw the growing crops, which I don't know how well they were growing, Um, the medical clinic, the houses, the daycare. So everything seemed really great. And then the night of November 17th, there was a big reception with music and dancing in the pavilion where the visitors met with Jonestown and um, Jackie Spear, who was uh, Congressman Ryan's aide said like all that she saw was a very vibrant community like it was a lot of fun and people were really happy okay it's a little weird but you guys are working so yeah so yeah everything everything sounds pretty great like we don't know what the problem is well you had time to clean up everything <laughs> right right Jones sat down with the reporters while the party was going on and of course he starts rambling and ranting about his enemies and the government and the attacks on the media so he's pretty much like a party pooper at this point where (laughs) everyone else is having fun and he goes off the deep end so they're kind of like yeah he's kind of odd but at the end of the night Congressman Ryan actually gets up on stage and he gives this nice speech and he says quote I can tell you right now that from the few conversations I've had with some of the folks here already this evening, that whatever the comments are, there are some people here who believe this is the best thing that has ever happened to them in their whole life. So, which was followed by several minutes of clapping and cheering, but not everybody there was happy. Some people had other plans. This is where we meet Vernon Gosney, who is one of the People's Temple's members. He came to Jonestown with his son after his wife died, and 
he had decided, I want out of Jonestown. If I don't get out of Jonestown, I'm going to die in Jonestown. So his plan had been to pass a note, a handwritten note, to Leo Ryan asking for help getting himself out along with a woman named Monica Bagby. So he sees a reporter that he at first mistakes for Leo Ryan. And so like he kind of walks oh. up casually and takes this note. And he puts it into the, tries to put it into, like, the fold of the reporter's arm, and it falls to the ground. So, like, Uh-oh. Gosney reaches down, he picks it up, and he's like, oh, you dropped something, handed it to the reporter. There's a kid Good standing cover. nearby. The kid sees what happens, and he starts shouting. Oh, he passed a note, which starts oh drawing God. attention. So, they're like, you know, what's going on? That kind of, like, opens up everything. So, obviously, the reporter reads the note. He goes to Senator Ryan or Congressman Ryan and Jackie Spear, and he's like, okay, there might be something wrong here. Like, we just got this note. Ryan, um, Congressman Ryan actually stays the night in Jonestown. That's a brave move. Yeah, he stays. The reporters are told. I would be so told, scared. Well, yeah, the reporters are told you have to go back to Port Kaituma. You can't stay here. But right. from what I read about Congressman Ryan was he was like, he was he was a great congressman. He was very committed to helping people. He actually spent time willingly in Folsom Prison so he could learn more about the prison system. So he yeah. was actually incarcerated for an amount of time because he's like, I want to know more about the prison system and how we can change it, but I have to live in it to know. Like they said, like he wouldn't oh, back down from anything. He was he went back down from anything. He wasn't scared. And by the next morning, everything starts changing. And there are several other people and families who are stepping forward and telling the Ryan delegation that they want to leave Jonestown as well. This includes the Parks family, the Bogue family, a man named Christopher O'Neill, and Harold Cordell. So these were families that had been with People's Temple since the beginning. And they were like, no, we want to leave. Also, unknown to everybody at this time, there had been 11 temple, Temple members who sensed something was happening and there was danger and they made up this whole lie of hey we're gonna go to the jungle for a picnic for the day when in reality they escaped into the jungle and hiked for days to get to safety one woman carried her son on her back the whole entire way and unbeknownst to her husband who he was a member of jones's protection squad called the red brigade do you want to know his name Oh my god, it's gonna be something great, isn't it? To Joe Wilson. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> we laugh because we have a mutual friend by that exact same name. Yep. So, but this Joe Wilson was not a good Joe Wilson because he was basically a member of um, a hit squad. So, but god. his wife left. His wife's like, something's happening, and I have to get my son out of here. And so, yeah, you they, know what? Like, they how to threatened? Safety. Do you have to feel to grab your kid, like put them on your back and like hike through the jungle for miles in a place that you don't know, you've never been? Yeah. You are risking both of your lives. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was. Because things are so shitty there, you would rather take a chance on death. Yeah. She's basically like, we didn't have a choice. Like if we died in the jungle, we died in the jungle. But we it's were like gonna certain die. death versus almost certain death. I'll yeah. take almost certain death. I think at that point they knew something was going down at Jonestown. So. Right. Good for them. So. And kind of interesting while this is all happening while everyone's kind of gathered in the into the pavilion 
families are saying, we want to leave, and they're being interviewed. A huge storm blew into Jonestown. It had been a day. It had been nice and sunny and warm. And then they said all of a sudden it was like black clouds rolled in, torrential rain, wind. They were like, the skies just opened up. That's a sign right. from above. And um, Temple member Tim Carter, he said, what I personally felt was that evil itself blew into Jonestown. So, yeah, at this point, things are falling apart. Again, reporters sit down with Jones. They show him the note that Vern Gosney had, Vernon Gosney had written saying he wanted out. And, of course, Jones is like, oh, he's a liar. All these people who want to leave, they're liars. They're liars. And, you know, Vernon Gosney had decided he was going to leave his son behind. His son was black. Vernon Gosney was white. So his wife had been black. So he was like, at the time, I couldn't think straight. All I knew was that I felt like my my son wouldn't be as threatened here being an African-American boy as he would be back in the United States. So he was like, I, I decided to leave my son and I would come back for him later. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine making that decision. Oh, geez. Vernon Gosney also told Leo Ryan who was he was going to stay an extra day to help more people who were wanting to kind of defect. And Vernon Gosney actually told Congressman Ryan, you are in extreme danger here and you need to leave right now. And Congressman Ryan was like, nope, like we're okay. Nothing's going to happen to you or me. We have the congressional shield of protection. I don't know. I mean. But that goes with what I've read about his personality where he was just like, I can handle anything. Like I got this. But it was right after he said this that a temple member named Don Ujara Sly, Ujara is in quotes. I guess that's his temple name. He came up behind Ryan grabbed him held a knife to his throat and said you're going to die so oh my god yeah so other temple members are horrified and they like wrestle sly away from congressman ryan he's unhurt he's fine his shirt's ripped there's blood on him but it's not his own and jim jones is standing there just watching doing absolutely nothing he's just watching it so i you kind of wonder if he set that up to happen But after that, Ryan decides, okay, yeah, I'm going to leave with the rest of the delegation because I think I'm in some danger here. But you know, if they kill him, and I mean, what's it going to look like if this congressman goes to visit your church, in air quotes, in South America, and then he doesn't make it back home? Come on, it's going to draw even more attention to you. Yes, it would. He probably doesn't care at this point. They all jump on a truck. The delegation jumps on this truck, and they're they're starting to drive away. And a man named Larry Layton jumps onto the back of uh, back of the truck, and he says, "I want to leave too." And defecting members who are on the truck were immediately like, "This does not make any sense. Like this is one of his most loyal followers. There is no way this guy is defecting." But Ryan was just like, "No. Like if anyone wants to defect, they can defect. We're taking them with us." So he was allowed oh, wow. on the truck. They drive back to Port Kaituma, where there's now two airplanes that are waiting because they've had to get an extra airplane mm-hmm. to with all these extra people they have. So the two airplanes are there. As they're getting ready to board, there's a dump truck that comes speeding onto the airstrip carrying members of People's Temple called the Red Brigade, including Joe Wilson. He's there as well. Mm-hmm. They pull up onto the airstrip and they're all holding guns. And they pull the truck right by the plane that blocks the plane from the jungle. Not good. Okay. Meanwhile, the smaller plane has already boarded with um, several passengers on it, some of the defectors. 
um, including Vernon Gosney, who passed the note, Monica Bagby, who was on the same note, a man named Dale Parks, who was defecting with his whole family, and then the last-minute defector, Larry Layton. As the plane is taxiing, Larry Layton pulls out a handgun and open fired on everyone in the plane. Oh, shit. He shoots Monica Bagby and Vernon Gosney, wounding them. But luckily, he gets disarmed and knocked out by Dale Parks um, before he could actually kill somebody. But he he did shoot Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby. So he was like the devout follower. He really did not want to Mm -hmm. defect. So obviously, the pilots are like screw this we're gone and they take off because they're like we have to get out of here because he's still on the plane with the yes. gun or did they take him off the plane no he's on the plane he's knocked out but they take okay, off he's knocked out good because at the same time members of the red brigade brigade who have pulled that dump truck next to the plane between the plane and the jungle they jump out of the truck and start firing on the people who are still boarding the other plane yep so the sound technician steve sung he said that they obviously had purposely cut them off from the jungle so that they couldn't run the beginning of the shooting was actually captured on film by cameraman bob brown before he was shot and killed in the video cuts and i've seen it and it's it's awful. Like you see him shooting, he's sitting on the ground and then you see the camera kind of wobble, falls over and it goes out. And that's when he was killed. Also killed photographer, Greg Robinson, NBC reporter, Don Harris, temple defector, Patricia Parks. Her husband had been on the other plane and got away, but Patricia was killed and Congressman Leo Ryan. Oh, I was hoping he wouldn't die. Ryan was shot more than 20 times. Some at point blank range. His aide, Jackie Spear, audio technician Steve Sung, Richard Dwyer, reporter Tim, reporter Tim Reederman, and Anthony Katsaris, who was one of the um, concerned relatives. They were all shot and injured, but ended up surviving. They all played dead, trying to stay still as shooters walked around. Jackie Spear Smart. was actually shot point blank range as she pretended to be dead, hiding behind one of the tires. Oh, um, there are a couple children of the Parks family who had defected that were told by their dad to run into the jungle where they escaped and they hid and they survived and they're fine. Oh, that's good. So that attack happened on the airship and Ryan is dead. Congressman Ryan is dead. Meanwhile, back in Jonestown, it all hit the fan and Jones was losing control. He'd been told that Congressman Ryan, you know, Congressman Ryan was like, I'm going to make a favorable report for Jonestown. Like, even the small amount of defectors who are leaving, you know, in the grand scheme of things, there's 900 people there. You can't make everybody happy. People who are leaving is really not that much. Like, I still see what you have here as pretty incredible. But this really didn't matter to Jones. Like, he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't hear when people told him that. He just kept saying all was lost, all had failed. And that's when he gets onto the speaker and he calls for a white knight. And this is as his aides are preparing a mix of not Kool-Aid, but Flavor-Aid. So that's kind of a misconception. It was Flavor-Aid and off-brand okay. Kool-Aid. They're preparing a mix of Flavor-Aid, Valium, and Cyanide in a metal tub at the pavilion where everyone was just called to. Damn. Yes. So there's a recording of all of this it's 44 minutes and it's called the death tape and i would not recommend listening to it to anybody who has a weak stomach or can't stomach something awful because it's pretty bad it's pretty bad to listen to you can you can hear people screaming in the background so 
but it's all he recorded all of it um so that's how we know some how everything went down that last day jones tells his people everyone that has gathered you know he's like i know that someone on the plane is going to shoot the pilot dead the plane is going to crash and because of that people are going to come parachuting in to our community and they're going to come for you guys and they're going to kill you and he says quote we better not have any of our children left when it's over so basically he tells them it's better that we die now it's better that we have our children die now than get captured by these people who are going to come for us oh dear Whereas before he had given them options about how to handle something like this, he's telling them we're committing revolutionary suicide today. There was one woman in the audience named Christine Miller. I love her. She was the only one to stand up against Jones and she'd been known to push back against Jones. And so she Brave. says, why can't we run to the Soviet Union? Like, this is what you've said we can do before why is this not an option and she's you know says if we can save the babies and there's hope that's what we need it's not over if we can save ourselves of course jones shoots her down and he just keeps saying you know soviet union is not an option anymore no one's going to want to take us after what happened it's not an option it's not an option she keeps arguing with him but every time she has something to argue he keeps pushing back and just pretty much brushes her off and at one point he even says like yeah, we're going to, I'll make a call to the Soviet Union right now, but I can already tell you that they're not going to let us come. Eventually, people just start yelling at Christine and saying, you know, she's ungrateful and she wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for Jones. She just basically <laughs> shut up and do that. Okay. So Christine finally gives in and relents. At this time, members of the Red Brigade come back from Port Kaituma and they announce that Congressman Ryan is dead. And this is when Jones kind of snaps into it and is like, all right, we're doing this now. Everybody gather around. Everybody get ready. We're doing this now. This is also when temple members with guns surround the pavilion. So not really leaving anybody a choice. Several temple members. Are I was just about to ask. <laughs> what? Like, why didn't they just say no? Like, why didn't they're like, oh, obviously they killed the congressman. Mm hmm. Or somebody from the church did or it was orchestrated. So I'd be just be like, no, I'm not doing but they this. Don't but realize. if you have people surrounding you with guns that you're going to die either way. So They've been so brainwashed at this point yeah. and told over and over and over that they're coming to get you. They're coming to get you. And now, yeah. now he's dead. So, of course, they're going to come and get you. And you're going to be taken and tortured and killed. So they're so brainwashed that it all makes sense to them. And even for the ones that push back, it's like, all right, you have to drink this stuff or this guy behind you is going to shoot you with a machine gun. Exactly. And so it's like, how do you want to die? Yeah. So you can do it painlessly or you can do it. Of course, I don't know if cyanide is painless or not, but it wasn't painless. you can either drink the thing or we can make it worse. Right. Several Ugh, uh, temple so members are recorded as praising Jones for everything that he's done, but at this point like you can tell he's not even paying attention to it like they're like you're so wonderful you're so great and he's just like get the medicine get the medicine hurry 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 we have to do this now like he's not even paying attention to them he doesn't they don't matter to him they've never mattered to him no he only cared about himself always um he does ask his nurse maria katsaris at one point like if there was a way to make quote it taste less bitter meaning the medicine and she says no and More then flavoring. she says, but it will be quick. So this is when it gets 
this is when it gets really bad. Um, a survivor named Odell Rhodes, he reported later that he saw the first to step forward was a woman named Ruletta Paul with her infant. And a nurse Aww. had a syringe without a needle, and it was used to squirt the poison into the baby's mouth. And then Ruletta squirted the same into her mouth. So the, the And then walked off to die. The children were the first to get the poison. And I really honestly believe this was done purposefully because Jones saw, like, if we kill the babies, no one else is going to want to live. What point is anyone else going to have to live if we've just killed all their kids? So obviously the children did not commit suicide. They were murdered. They were. Well, did any of them really commit suicide? Let that discussion. Once more people started taking the poison and others saw, like, the effect that it was having and that, like... I'm assuming it was painful because you can hear on the death tape people screaming in the background and babies crying. So I don't think it was painless whatsoever. But as the more people are seeing this happen, they're like, oh, my God, this isn't just your regular white night drill. This is right. I imagine that would be a huge shock. Right. It's this is for real. And it's painful and it's scary and people are panicking and so some people are injected with it with you know you've got people who are being injected with needles you have people who are just being like dumped down their throat who are trying to push back and then meanwhile jones is talking over everything and he is he says things like die with a degree of dignity lay down your life don't lay down with tears and agony don't i don't care how many screams you hear Death is a million times preferable to 10 more days in this life. And then he repeatedly tells them to hurry, 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 keep going. Odell Rhodes, he said there was a lot of panic and confusion from parents who are now watching their children die. He said some even seemed to be in a trance. Some quietly waited for their own turn to die. And you have to think that people were just kind of in shock and numb at this point. And also they've been sleep deprived. They've been deprived food. They've had those drills that over and over and over. So, you know, like you said, how much was of it was really a choice. Armed guards surrounded everyone again. So no one really had a choice. Um, the guards yeah, were some of the I last mean, to step forward to take the poison once everybody else had taken it. Survivor Tim Carter, who I mentioned before, he said that he was just kind of standing in the pavilion thinking, I need a second to figure this out. Like, I need to figure out what's going on. I need a second to think. And then he happened to look over just in time to see his wife holding his infant son, injecting his son with poison. Oh, my God. And she drank it right after. And he said he held his wife and child as they died. Imagine living with that for the rest of your life. Members in Georgetown, remember I said they had a house in Georgetown. So those who lived in Georgetown were actually given orders by Jones before this all started that it was time to kill themselves. Jones was found on the ground next to his chair with an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to his head. Fuck you. He didn't even drink the poison like everybody else. But his son, Stefan who was away at the time, he had been sent away. He was on the basketball team for Jonestown, and he had been yeah. away at a tournament. He thinks his mother purposefully sent him away to this tournament, knowing something was going to happen and wanted him out of Jonestown. He doesn't believe his dad shot himself. He said there was no way he would have done that to himself. Somebody had to have done it for him because he didn't want to die. Or somebody, he told somebody to do it. Yeah. Like, just do it when I'm not looking kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
Otherwise, why would they do it if they were going to kill him? Like, why would they just kill him, like, do it before he poisons everybody? No, I think he just had someone do it for him. I think so, too. Mm -hmm. I think he just was like, I just don't tell me when. Just Just your order is to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In all, 918 people died. 300 300 of those were children. And this made it the largest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act until 9-11 happened. I was going to say until 9-11. Yeah, yeah. 9-11 happened. There were a few that managed to escape. Tim Carter, who I had just mentioned, and his brother with another man had actually been given, before it all started, a, a case full of money that they were supposed to deliver to the Soviet embassy in Guyana. So it was basically oh. all the assets of Jonestown that Jim Jones was transferring to the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. So they used the suitcase to be like, Hey, we've been instructed. Like once he watches his family die and he's like, I have to get out of here to the guards. He's like, Hey, we have this mission from Jones. We have to go. So they walk off into the jungle and then they just take off. They dump the, Hell they yeah. dump the suitcase cause they don't want to have the suitcase on them and look guilty. So they just take off, ended up in Port Kaituma. And, um, they were eventually, I think they were held for a little while under protective custody and then released. Right. Tim Carter actually was brought back to Jonestown to help identify bodies because there were so many of them. A man named Stanley Clayton had watched his entire family die. His wife, his mother, grandmother, sister, brother, I believe, all died. He ran off into the jungle after witnessing it. Odell Rhodes, who I mentioned before, he volunteered to go find a, a stethoscope to help the medical staff in the medical building and then hid under a building until it was all over. So basically he's like, Oh, I'm going to go get a stethoscope. And then he hid. Be right back. Nope. A man named Grover Davis, who was 79 years old. He was hard of hearing. So he completely missed the white knight call to come to the pavilion. So he came out in the middle of it, laid down in a ditch and pretended to be dead. A woman named Hyacinth Thrush, she was 76. She knew something bad was happening when that white knight was called. So she hid under her bed. And by the time she walked out of her cabin, everybody was dead. But she was a survivor. And again, Jones's sons, Stefan and Jim Jones Jr. survived. Jim Jones's wife did not. It was reported that she struggled until the last kid died. And then she let somebody inject her with it. When it was all over, there was a doctor named Mutu in Guyana who visually examined about 200 bodies, and he later reported there were needle marks on at least 70 people. And then it goes along kind of with what Tim Carter mm-hmm. reported. He said there he saw a lot of needle marks on people in places that they couldn't inject themselves, like the, on their back, on like the back of their neck. There were a lot of needles that were broken and bent, so it's believed that actually a lot of people were forcibly injected with the poison. Well, yeah, they'd sneak right. up behind them, which makes me think, like, this is not mass suicide. Right. This is mass but murder. It's what was deemed suicide. Annie Moore, she was one of Jim Jones's nurses. She was also found with a gunshot wound on her head, but it was ruled to be not self-inflicted. She also had a lethal dose of cyanide in her system. So people kind of get confused about okay. that. Like, who shot her? Did she shoot herself to speed up the process? The bodies of 918 were transported back to the U.S. into Dover Air Force Base, where staff had to fingerprint and identify bodies and then get them to nearby funeral homes for cremation. Some remains were never claimed, 
either because there wasn't family left or because family was afraid to claim the deceased because there had been so much fear of like after this happened people didn't trust anybody who had been associated with Jonestown so some family didn't even claim their family's remains when they came back wow in 20 August 2014 the cremated remains of nine people were found still at a funeral home that had never been claimed and as of now five have still not been claimed by families what will they do I wonder after a certain amount of time do they just kind of inter them somewhere and been over 40 years just call them Jonestown yeah. victims and have some kind of singular, like, not like burials and they're cremated, like well, internment they, for them, there are 400 bodies that are buried together in one grave at Evergreen Cemetery in yeah. California. And in 2011, there was actually a memorial that was set up for those victims. I am not going to go into all the conspiracies related to Jonestown. That's a whole separate podcast, but... I figure it was pretty cut and dry. I would There's figure conspiracies. There'd be conspiracies. A lot attached. like Jim Jones isn't really dead. He escaped to Brazil. The CIA was involved. There was even a theory that this was part of an MK Ultra mind control experiment. It's crazy. The question now is, what are your thoughts on who did they willingly drink? Could it be ruled a suicide? Should it be ruled murder? Should it be ruled murder suicide? How much choice did they have? I say. I think for all the people, it's murder. I mean, he didn't really give them a choice to do it. He was like, yeah, drink this Kool-Aid. Yes, there was an element of brainwashing. But you also have armed guards surrounding you. And it's like, if you don't do this, you're going to die. Because based on the culture of this cult, if you don't do what you're told, you're going to have mm -hmm. consequences. And when people start drinking this stuff and they start dying and everybody's panicking, like, holy shit, like, what the hell's going on? It's kind of a wake-up call. And the fact that people have needle marks in their backs and mm -hmm. places and they're all broken, obviously mm -hmm. they struggled. If you would have asked them, do you want to do this, which they probably did not do, a lot of people probably would have said no. I think no. a lot of people would have said yes. But because of the brainwashing, I, I still don't even think those people could be said to commit suicide because of the brainwashing the lack of sleep, the lack of food, the isolation in this community where they're really not given a chance to get out. So I don't even think if someone would have said yes, if you could say it was suicide. You're like under the influence of something. It's like if somebody is, I don't know. It's like if somebody commits assault in a bar because they punched somebody in a bar, but they were drunk. And I'm like, okay, you're, yeah, you're guilty of assault, but somebody could have goaded you into it and be like, hey, that guy, like he called you an idiot. Are you going to stand for that? You should go punch him. And then you get up and you're like, hey, I heard you call me an idiot. And then you punch the guy. Well, because you're under the influence of somebody else and you're drunk. Like if you were normal yourself and somebody asked you, hey, will you go punch that guy? Mm -hmm. If he called you an idiot, you could be like, no, because I don't care. Yeah. You know, you have a choice in the matter. I feel like they were taking the choices away and they really could not make an informed decision, even if they were given one. So, yeah, same yeah. order. Well, for the kids. And as far as Jim Jones himself, I'd say that was suicide because he probably had somebody right. kill him. He probably ordered somebody to take him out, which, granted, he didn't do it himself. But if you tell somebody to do it and they do. Well, he could I have mean, done it himself. He could have done it himself. His son yeah. just doesn't think he did it himself. I think someone that's that narcissistic is not going to do it himself. I even had a theory that he no, was not even going to kill himself at all. And then maybe somebody else did. And they're just like, hell no, you're the not gun was found <laughs> far away from him. The gun wasn't near him. So I'm like, right. well, how do we know that he was going to try and escape and just be like, I'll carry on people's and temple without you guys. And someone was like, no, you're not yeah. doing that. And somebody could have moved it. Right. It could have got moved. It could have got kicked. There was so much going on. It could have just got whatever. I mean, we'll, we'll never know. 
we're never going to know what happened. Yeah. I mean, the kids for sure were, that was murder. Kids don't have a choice. You are killing, you're killing oh, infants. Oh, yeah. Especially you're killing the babies. babies. And I go, oh, I just, I think of Vernon Gosney who he left, his son died. He left his son behind thinking his son yeah. would be safer there and than in the United States. And his son was dead. And I watched an interview with him and he's like, I have to live with that every single day. And that guilt that I left oh, him there. Guy. I was actually thinking of the um, Sinister Hook QAnon podcast that we just listened to about how like even some people might have doubt about the organization that they're in, but then they're like, but if I leave now, like everything I've done is pointless and I'll look stupid. And so I just kind of have to keep going. You just get into the point where you think, well, I can't get out now. I've already given so much to it. It's interesting on some of these documentaries, I was reading comments and the amount of people who were like, oh, I would never join a cult. I would never do that. I'm too smart for that. And I think, but you but don't that's know. The point. And Deborah Layton, who her brother-in-law was Larry Layton, the defector who shot the people on the plane, which by the way, he did face jail time for that, but he was released in okay. 2002. The one person that came and spoke for his release at his parole hearing was Vernon Gosney, who he shot. And he said he needs to be out. He oh, should wow. not be in jail for this. With ev- same thing, everything, the brainwashing that had gone on and the abuse, the emotional abuse, the physical abuse. So, yeah, he's out. Yeah. Um, but his sister in law, Deborah Layton, who ended up defecting, she made a really good point, you know, with people who say that. She says, no one joins a cult. You join a church, you join an organization, you join a cause that you really like, where you make friends and you make yeah. family and community and you have purpose and you devote your time to that. That's what people join. And then it just gets slowly changed as time goes on. And then by the time you realize it's too late, like no one joins a cult. There wasn't. You didn't have me in November 17th, 1978, like, I'm going to go check out this Jonestown place. And I get there and I'm like, oh, this torture sounds really cool. This sounds really, really good. (laughs) No, like if you're seeing that through fresh eyes and you haven't experienced that for, you know, 30 something years, well, not that much, like 20 something years, you're going to think this is crazy. I have to get out of there. But when you've been in it from the beginning, you don't see it like that. And what sucks is that their whole mission when they started out was really good. Like even so many of the people who got out, they're like, it was a really cool community before he came in. Like what we were doing, the community we were building, the family that we had, like it was a really, really good, a really good thing that got messed up. It's like, how did it get so messed up at what Him. point? Because the sad, people, like, well, men. not the saddest thing, but- Men, <laughs> not men, but like human beings, right? Like people in general, and the nature of humans, and how they are. I guess it was his crave for power, probably. Well, his son Jim Jones Jr. said it was it was love. Like he he didn't get love growing up. He didn't have a father figure. His mom was always working. He didn't feel loved, and he was almost obsessed with feeling that love from people. And he saw when people left him as like the ultimate betrayal. And it's like, it's so sad because if they would have not made that turn or if he wouldn't, I shouldn't say they, I should say if he wouldn't have made that turn and he would have kept on with just like the integrated churches and the helping Mm -hmm. the addiction problems and homeless problem and all that. Think of the good he could have done in the world. And he probably would have been loved. Like he would have genuinely been loved as a person Mm -hmm. that did like a Princess Diana type 
mm-hmm. person. Like he could have went around and done so much for people in the world and they would have loved and respected him for that. But instead, somehow or another, the switch flipped and everything took a turn and he had to force people to love him. But they would have loved him anyway had he stayed on a better path. Right. I don't think there was a switch that flipped. I think that was him from the beginning. From when Right. I do too. I mean, and when he was little and shot at the kid. Locking people in churches. Yeah. And this was just his way of of getting what he wanted and manipulating people and being their savior. You just kind of do wonder if he suffered from any kind of mental illness, like schizophrenia. Probably. You know, narcissism. Delusions of grandeur. Definitely narcissism. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I feel bad for the for the temple members who've kind of got out of it. And looking back, it's like they were really trying to do something good and they were doing good things. They did help. Yeah. I will say that they helped people. I will never say that Jim Jones helped people. I will say that People's Temple helped people. I wonder if the survivors like have all gotten together like recently or anything, or if they still like talk about it, like maybe they could form their own group or they could like they could still do good in the world. There's lots of interviews um, with yeah. the survivors out there. A lot of them, though, wouldn't tell people through the years who they were, that they were Jonestown survivors. I don't blame them, really. Because of the fear that people had of, like, not trusting them. them. Where I think, like, if somebody comes up to me and they're like, I'm a Jonestown survivor, I'm going to be like, oh, my God, let's sit down and talk. I'm like, Please. yes, I will buy you a drink. Oh do you have gosh. a couple hours? Tell me yes. everything. Yeah. And to be like, I'm so sorry that you went through that. I'm sorry right, to experience exactly. that. I imagine that people would take you, like if I was a survivor and I wouldn't want to be out with it either because people might, I mean, like we've said before, like how can somebody join a cult? Like, how are you so stupid? Like that sort of thing. And I bet they feel really misunderstood. Well, and now we learn about this. We have hindsight of everything that happened of course. in Jonestown. Like we know from start to finish what happened. We have that hindsight. We also have hindsight now, more now of cults. Yeah. They didn't really have that then. Like. Yeah, stuff was happening. You have Charles Manson and the family, his cult. You have Jonestown. You have the Moonies. You have um, Branch Davidians. And Waco, you've got, what was the one? The They all killed themselves from the comet? Heaven's Gate. The Heaven's oh, Gate yeah. Cult. Is that the December 21st, 2012 one or something? Or? No, this was another one. This happened in the oh. 90s. I won't be surprised when Scientolo- something happens with Scientology. Um, So... Let's see what else. Oh, there was a team. So Jonestown's now deserted. It's all the buildings are gone. I think they burned down at one point and it's everything's been looted. So the jungle's kind of taken back over. It's still pretty open. Yeah. The trees really haven't come back, but there's a lot of overgrowth um, where most of the bodies laid. They're really pretty like yellow flowers. Oh, there was a team that went back in the 90s and they found what they believed to be the rusted out metal tub that had been used to make the poison just kind of sitting there. Uh. There was a sign that hung above Jim Jones's chair in the pavilion and it read, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Wow. But I take that as like, we should remember these things that happened and not right. repeat them and not blindly follow people who are saying certain things would you argue argue that political parties are a cult or can be a cult i think they're cult-like i definitely because there are some people that are like i'm a republican or i'm a democrat or i'm like whatever and they vote straight up party line and they do whatever the party says and it doesn't matter if they agree or disagree or they don't say well i like this but i don't like this and they just blindly follow whatever party leaders tell them to do. And the not questioning what party leaders exactly. are telling them. 
That's very yeah. dangerous where Jim Jones And that's not on all sides, too. It's not oh, just yeah, for sure. Republicans or Democrat. You have to question everything. Me and Ryan had a conversation the other day about, well, by the other day, it could have been a week ago. It could have been months ago. <laughs> but we were talking about cults. And it's like, at what point, if you're involved in something like this, would be your turning point to where you're like, no, 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 no not doing this anymore and i think it was after i I listened to the escaping nexium podcast yeah and the survivor was talking about how whenever they would have like she would get pulled more and more into it and she had doubts and they would say things like don't you want to empower yourself like don't you want to better your life like why don't you want to better your life and all this and Mm -hmm. they kind of make you like when you say the words out loud like i don't want to better my life like that's what they want you to say but then right. you, it sounds so silly when you do say it. So you're not going to do it. And you're going to mm-hmm. be like, okay, like one more chance, just one more chance, one yeah. more chance. But then it's like, we need you to sign over your house to us and your bank account and all this. I'd be like, no, that's, that's for me. No, I can get down with helping like social issues. Yeah. But if you're following that whole, like you give up everything and it becomes communal, then you're like, okay, yeah. Like take my house. Like I'll, I'll live here. I couldn't I'll do that. live in the community. Well, that's my turning point over. where I'm like, nope, sorry. There was one woman, I think it was Jean Mills who actually ended up dying a couple years after she did a documentary, but she and her husband had decided, okay, it's time that we get out of here. And they told their kids, this is what we're, and their kids had grown up in the church. So they were like, this is what we're going to do. And their kids said, well, we really hope that when you decide to leave, you move far away so that it's not us who's ordered to kill you. Oh, geez. Yeah. So she's like, that's the level of brainwashing that was going on. And kids, kids are growing up in that. Yeah. I could get down with like having a community garden. Like (laughs) if you have this like commune area where you have like your church and like the event hall and maybe some houses or something and yeah community garden we can all like cook together yeah I always wanted to join a commune until I started reading about all these communes (laughs) that always turn into cults so I'm like why can't I just have a commune that doesn't turn into a cult see if people would just bought more monkeys just buy more monkeys so yeah that's that's Jonestown (sighs) that's it was heavy it was a bummer and it's another long long episode I did not know about the plane, about the congressman and the plane. Oh, you did it? Everybody being shot. No, I didn't know about all that. I just thought it was like, and I knew he did like the tests with the mm-hmm. the drink or whatever, but I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know about the plane shootout thing. And like, that's kind of the catalyst. Yeah. And the reporter, Tim Reederman, he said he believed that Jones orchestrated all of that because then he could come back and say, look, because of this, we're not safe in any other country. No country is going to want us. We're on our own. We have to kill ourselves. So that's probably like when he planned it. Like, I wonder if the congressman never was going to visit or if this whole delegation were never going to visit, if he just would have kept on keeping on. I think that this was always going to happen in one shape or another. I think Jim Jones knew there was one road into Jonestown and there was no road out for any member. So if this delegation ever came, it would have just been a whole other event. He would have found another excuse to be like, all right, we've got to kill ourselves. So I think it was always going to happen. And I think that moment if people had refused and said, no, we're not drinking the cyanide, I think they would have been shot and killed. So I think that was that was the end regardless for him. <sighs> Jeez. That's bananas. It is really sad, though, that they had something like that going in the beginning, and it could have done such great things for the world, mm-hmm. but it didn't. 
it did. It did to start out. It did do great things for the world. Yeah. Like it, it integrated and it helped people on drugs. It helped the elderly. Like it really did. It did have a good thing going. They could have kept it going. I don't think it could have kept going there in Guyana. No. Do you think, I think he picked that place too, because there was one road in and one road out. I think out. he did too. I think it was isolating. Because that's one of the things about getting control of people is isolating them. It's like people in abusive relationships. It's one of the signs is they take your phone away or you're forbidden to be around your friends and you're the only person that you let the, you, what am I trying to say? Like you're the only person that, that you can talk to. Yeah. Because isolation is a step toward control. Mm-hmm. Damn, what a bummer. Thanks for that. You're welcome. I told you it was a bummer. I told you it was heavy. I was, I was, was. really down yesterday after I finished this. My goodness. So, yep, that's Jim Jones. Well, thank you for listening to my super long bummer story. <laughs> yeah, I don't know a way to make anybody laugh after that. No. And just, you know, maybe we shouldn't use the term drink the Kool-Aid anymore. Yeah, I'm very going to be highly aware of yeah, that right I, now. I'm going to try not to use it anymore. If you have some fun stories, please, please email us at darkersideoflifepodcast at gmail.com and find us on Instagram at darkersideoflifepodcast. Find us on Twitter at at DSOL podcast. Yep. At DSOL podcast. Yep, you got it. Can't talk today. got it. When can I ever? Okay. Thanks for listening to us, guys. guys. See you next time. Bye. James, oh my God, why do you keep calling him James? Jim Jones. His name is Jim Jones.